What if it was your job to think the unthinkable, to think about ending all human life on the planet Earth in a cloud of radioactive death? We'll meet the Americans who bore that awesome responsibility next. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. The Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many fold, and the end is not yet. With this bomb, we have now added a new and revolutionary increase in destruction to supplement the growing power of our armed forces. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. Now number one in podcasting, thanks to loyal listeners like you. In this episode, our time machine drops in on key flashpoints and day-to-day operations, from Harry S. Truman first getting word that the Manhattan Project had birthed its radioactive fruit, to modern fears of rogue nations and terrorists, it's been a headache for presidents for 70 years. Our guide on this journey is the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Fred Kaplan, who previously brought us the Wizards of Armageddon. He returns with the definitive history of U.S. atomic policy. It's titled, The Bomb, Presidents, Generals, and the Secret History of Nuclear War. Fred Kaplan is the national security columnist for Slate and the author of five previous books, including Dark Territory, The Secret History of Cyber War and the Pulitzer finalist, The Plot to Change the American Way of War. Visit him at fredkaplan.info or find him at fmkaplan on Twitter. Now that we've seen that blinding flash of light that signaled America's splitting of the atom, let's join Fred Kaplan and witness the men burdened with the awesome responsibility of the bomb. Dr. Strange Love. Or how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. A moving <laughs> picture. Well, boys, I reckon this is it. Nuclear combat toe to toe with the Ruskies. I'm joined on the line by Fred Kaplan, author of The Bomb President's Generals and the Secret History of Nuclear War. And I just read that Timothy Naftali says that Fred Kaplan is the world's preeminent Dr. Strangelove whisperer. So there you go. That, that They've never spoken to a Dr. Strangelove whisperer before, but who am I to argue with an author? And uh, so I want to thank you for making time to chat with the History Author Show and talk about oh, the well, bomb. Thank you. There's a word in your subtitle that we've come to expect when talking about nuclear war, and that's the word secret the secret history of nuclear war. 
By necessity, the government closely guards the details of your topic, and sometimes when there are accidents, they don't want us to know. They're they're ready to cover that up. They don't want anyone to hear about it, maybe put it away in a vault for 30 or 40 years so we don't realize how close we might have come to something like nuking the state of North Carolina that one time (laughs) when uh, a bunch of fail-safes, I think it was four out of five, right, that failed. How were you able to bring your pedigree as an author into play to dig into those secrets and organize what you describe as, quote, treasures which haven't been plowed much well, by others. Well, I wrote a book about a similar subject in 1983 called The Wizards of Armageddon. And at that point, it was kind of the heyday of the Freedom of Information Act and mandatory declassification reviews. And for that book, I got thousands of documents declassified about nuclear war planning, mainly in the 50s and early 60s. Uh, After that point, it was still highly classified, and I had to get them through other ways. But since then, there have been other people who have carried on the work, particularly an organization called the National Security Archive, not agency, which has been doing a lot of work. I, I did some more work in this regard, plowing through some recently declassified things in presidential libraries. And in in terms of why others haven't plowed through them as much, I don't really know. I mean, it's a good question. Some of these documents have been out there for for well over a decade, and I have not seen them in any other books. Maybe it's because people who write about nuclear strategy tend to do it more from a theoretical perspective vantage point, you know, going into the doctrinal aspects. And people who write about diplomatic history don't delve in with much depth into the, the nuclear side of things. So, so maybe I'm um, a person who, who straddles both and therefore get a lot of material that, that tends to be ignored by, by the people on either side of me. It was a book that held my attention throughout and really excited me. And I know it's a book about nuclear war, potential nuclear war, but I found it really exciting and interesting as somebody who's interested in government, interested in politics, has worked in the news. And I looked at it and I said, okay, it's as if I'm dropping in and reading an old newspaper, which I love to do. And okay, I'm, I'm being thrown into the Oval Office there with Eisenhower. And then I'm thrown in with JFK and it's the mm-hmm. Cuban Missile Crisis. And it kept carrying me through. And it wasn't as if it was this long slog of a book that was just about one doomsday scenario after another. It was really meeting the people and seeing them at work and realizing that it's people just like us who are in charge, which is easy to forget in history. And things like that North Carolina mishap, we all remember those here and there. We read them in a column, say, at Slate, where you are, and you say, well, that's an interesting thing. I've got to tell my friends that the next time I'm having a beer. Do you know we almost dropped a nuclear bomb, live nuclear bomb, or did drop a live nuclear bomb on North Carolina, and four of the five fail-safes failed? The fact that you decide, hey, I'm going to put some of those in a book and tell people about these stories in a, in a chronology was something that does seem surprising nobody did before. It seems like every new president should be given a copy of the bomb and read and learn and see what presidents well, did before. You're, you're just you're just giving me one, one blurb <laughs> after the next here. Thanks very much. But, you know, you, you mentioned the, the part of the subtitle 
that mentions the secret history of nuclear war. I, I very deliberately made the subtitle also, the subtitle is President's Generals and the Secret History of Nuclear War. In other words, it's, as you say, it's about people. And the title is The Bomb. So it's basically how through history, much of which has been secret, how presidents and generals have dealt with the bomb. And there's conflict in this. There's drama. We deal with decisions on how many nuclear bombs to produce, what to do with them in case of war. And then there have been a few crises in history, more than most people know, where presidents have had to ponder seriously whether to use nuclear weapons. And some of the generals and even some of the civilian advisors have uh, advised them to do so. And so how did the presidents come to grips with the dangers, the logic, and find a way out of the hole that they were almost dug into? So, yeah, it's a political drama. It's not just about the bomb. It's about the people who have had to decide how and whether to use the bomb. And, and you know, we're dealing with um, one of the hallmark things of our, of our age. I mean, it, it's an existential situation. It is as vital and central to our existence as fire was in another age or, or the machines were into the industrial age. I say at the beginning that for a few decades after the end of the Cold War, it was very easy to kind of forget about this thing. But the machinery surrounding it has been churning along ever since. And, you know, some recent events sort of snapped all of us out of our slumber. That point about forgetting about them, putting them in the back of our minds, is partially because we haven't lived through seeing them drop. Mm -hmm. The number of people who lived through remembering the bombs being dropped at the end of World War II. Or, or even tested the in the atmosphere. We haven't really seen one blow up since 1963. It's true. Amazing. I didn't even think of that because we see the video of it, but the video is just yeah. that. It's not alive, and it's certainly not worrying about Sputnik right. overhead. You write that those who spend their careers thinking about the unthinkable would use black humor, such as Dr. Strangelove, to cope with the nuclear age. And this was shaken by a stark question President George H.W. Bush asked while comparing scenarios. He said, tell me the difference in the number of people I'm going to kill. And that struck me there because George Bush, 41, was a World War II veteran, had been shot down, yeah. had been in the war. And a lot of these civilians afterwards had been in uniform, at least during the war, and they lived through dropping it. And they lived through the horrors of it. They'd seen what it can do, and they'd seen those tests. Now it's passing on to a generation that it hasn't lived through that. Maybe doesn't even have parents anymore that have lived through it and saw what happened in the war. And so I, that's good, of course. It's good that we don't have memory of the bombs being dropped. But how do you think that will impact U.S. policy and strategy in the second nuclear century when people don't have that memory of what the bomb did, what it meant, and the destruction that it could cause? Yeah, that, that's an important point. You know, the people who get into this field deeply, they study a set of strategies. There's, there's going back decades, you know, volumes and volumes of debates over the, the proper nuclear strategy, what, what would really deter a foe from attacking us. 
to what degree we can fight a nuclear war. Is it possible to win a nuclear war? There are mathematical models that allow you to simulate what they call nuclear exchanges. You know, they launch a few, we launch a few, what happens? And to the people who are immersed in this day in, day out, they can't, every time they do this, examine the, the, the horror of it because, you know, they're, they're, they would just have nightmares all the time. So they insulate themselves from the reality. And the story that you mentioned about, about George H.W. Bush, he was president and some people from the Pentagon were bringing over a revision to the nuclear war plan. And actually, it was a fairly substantial revision that would allow more of what are known as limited options, the ability to maybe try to end the war by just keeping a retaliation to a small number of nuclear weapons, illusory as that might be. The person that I'm referring to was, was a, uh, a deputy assistant secretary named Gil Klinger, who was, was kind of a card, and he made a lot of jokes about these things. He's sitting in the back row along in the NSC meeting, and uh, after the briefing, he hears the president say, as you said, how many people am I going to have to kill with this? And it, it struck him. It, it kind of jarred him because, first of all, not that many people that he'd hung around talked in, in such stark terms. Second, these words came from the guy who was going to have to make that decision if a decision was ever made. This was the guy, you know, President Bush the first sort of stepping up and taking responsibility. Well, what is this going to mean? Looking at it in very personal terms. And, and that's not the way that people who think about and write about nuclear war and nuclear strategy think. It, it sounds kind of naive, but it's not naive. What, what it is, it's, it's stark. It, it reveals the, the underlying reality of this. There's another case where I talk about at a conference at the Aspen Institute, where somebody who was arguing the case for what are called low-yield nuclear weapons, new kinds of weapons that, that could make them more usable and, and to counter a, a Russian attack, the moderator said, well, when you say low-yield, what, what, what are we talking about here? And he said, oh, about eight or nine. He goes, eight or nine what? He goes, well, kilotons. The moderator said, oh, you mean so almost as much as Hiroshima? Hiroshima was like 12 Gosh. and a half kilotons. That would be called a low-yield weapon now. The guy who was being questioned said, well, you don't have to get pejorative about it. And the moderator says, well, I'm not being pejorative. I just want to make clear that we're not talking about firecrackers. And, and that <laughs> really? is, you know, we're talking about, <laughs> you know, let's say 10 kilotons. That's 10,000 tons. That's 20 million pounds. You know, the, the kind of bombs that you see going off, say, in, a, in the Iraq war, those were 2,000 pounds. This is 20 million pounds. Even, even some of the smallest weapons in our arsenal would cause a bigger explosion, a more damaging devastation than anything that humanity has ever seen. And not just the explosion, but you know, it also comes with heat, radiation, fire, radioactive fallout. You know, they think that maybe the, the most prominent uh, effect of a nuclear weapon would be heat and fire and smoke. And those effects are almost impossible to calculate. And therefore, when officials 
do calculations on how much damage this weapon or this series of weapons will cause, they leave it out because they don't know how to calculate it. Blast is easy to calculate. There are models you know, based on damage from World War II and you just extrapolate upwards and you know that you know one megaton will cause so much damage across you know, 10 square miles or whatever. But all the other effects, they're, they're left out of the equation, even though they would cause way more damage. And then when you get into things like nuclear winter, which is a phenomenon that has only been studied in the last couple of decades, you know, you could set off 80 nuclear weapons, which in this world would be called a very limited nuclear exchange. And uh, that, that could snuff out almost all of human life on the planet. And, you know, we're, we're talking about a world now where we have a few thousand, the Russians have a few thousand. And by the way, we've come down quite a lot. The peak in 1967, the United States had 30,000 nuclear weapons. A lot of them were, quote unquote, small tactical nuclear weapons in Europe and Asia, and those are all gone now. But we still have a lot of overkill, and yet it's about one-tenth the number that we've had at our peak. Or maybe I should say that the other way around, that we, we, we have one-tenth the number that we had at our peak, but it's still a lot of overkill. We, these things, if they ever were used, they would make they would make the rubble bounce a couple of times. Yeah, you write in the bomb that even a fairly pristine U.S. strike in 1961 would kill oh. half a million Russians, and that if some of them oh, were yeah. off, it would be even higher. And as you're saying, things like weather, whether yeah. or not a lot of and people are outside, is it a Sunday? Yeah, right. In 1960, yeah, they made the first what was called the PSYOP, the Single Integrated Operational Plan, the Integrated Nuclear War Plan, the Strategic Air Command. And Plan 1A in this plan, which would involve just firing every nuclear weapon we had at every target in the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, and Communist China, because they were all thought to be the same thing. Uh, somebody at that point asked, well, how many people is this going to kill? And it was 285 million. You have to be a pacifist or even a dove to ask, well, what kind of war aim, what kind of aim could, could possibly justify killing 285 million people? It's such a large number. I mean, it's almost imponderable. You, 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 I, I, I say a number like that, and I, I suspect that most people's mind just sort of real. I mean, it's so big that it's like talking about, you know, in terms of personal income, a billion dollars. I mean, it's it's more than you can possibly even imagine happening. And so, you know, the difference between a billion and 10 billion or whatever is is nothing. Well, 285 million, you know, and we talk about, you know, the most staggering wars that we've ever had killing a few million people. What the characters in my book have been doing for the last 60 years is trying to impose some kind of rationality on this weapon of terror. Certain times they've convinced themselves that they've done it. But the person who has to make the real decision, you know, the president, every time a president up till now has looked at this closely when they've been required to look at it closely, they say, no, no, I'm, I'm not going to go there. This doesn't make any sense to me. And they figure out a way to 
to get out of their hole. There are those moments in the Korean War, for instance, and this is what I'm speaking about, that the bomb puts these moments together. Your book puts these moments together where Eisenhower is talking about Korea and the generals, in a way, reminded me of Ulysses S. Grant when he's talking to Andrew Johnson when he takes over after Lincoln's been assassinated and he keeps mm-hmm. saying to him, well, when can I start hanging Confederates? You know, when can I when can I hang this without? And Grant's yeah. saying, you can't. Yeah. You can't. I promised Robert E. Lee. I gave him my word of honor. And, you know, I don't want to yeah. be we don't want to be fighting it again. And he just keeps asking him one way or the other when he can hang Jefferson Davis. And it's those moments with Eisenhower where they just keep saying, well, maybe we could use, as you said, a a small one there. And keep in mind the Moab, for instance, our largest non-nuclear bomb is a mere, quote unquote, mere 11 tons of TNT. So Eisenhower is opposed to using the bomb in ending World War II. But like his successors, he's willing to have the communist foes think he might pull the trigger. But see, here's the thing. When Eisenhower was president, we really had no conventional defense in Europe. And he didn't want to build one because it was very expensive. Eisenhower was above all else a penny pincher. And his view was also that if we ever did get into a war with the Soviet Union, it would quickly go nuclear. And so why bother putting more soldiers in, in in the zone? And so his view, and, and listen, there's reason to this. His view was, okay, look, if I believe that any war with the Soviet Union is going, you know, a direct conflict is going to escalate to nuclear weapons very quickly, then the way to, the, what I've got to do above all is to prevent this war from happening. And the way that I prevent this war from happening is to make the Russians believe that if they even stick one toe cross the east-west German line or some other territory that's vital to our interests, then I'm going to unleash nuclear war on them. It was called the doctrine of massive retaliation. You know, if it's going to happen, then use it as a deterrent. And the interesting thing is Eisenhower, he sometimes talked casually about the bomb. He would say publicly, he once said, it's really not that much different from a bullet. But in reality, he once got a briefing that there was there was a, a very secretive organization within the National Security Council called the Net Evaluation Subcommittee. It was so secret that its existence wasn't known. And what they would do, they would take a, they would count up all the weapons we had and look at the intelligence estimates of what the Soviets had. And then they would run simulations on very crude computers at the time of what would happen. And there would be a briefing about this. And, and the briefing haunted Eisenhower because it basically showed that both sides would just get wrecked. I mean, millions of people dead, millions more in need of medical treatment, which would be unavailable. The, the federal government essentially shutting down. It was, it was a nightmare. And he wrote in his diary how horrendous this was, but it redoubled his commitment to making sure that this never happened. But then, even so, there was a a crisis late in his term over Quimoy and and Matsu, the islands near the Taiwan Straits. It looked like China, communist China, might invade them. And he told the Joint Chiefs of Staff that if they do something, 
keep our response to conventional weapons for as long as possible. And there was a moment when the French were facing disaster in Vietnam. John Foster Dulles, Eisenhower's very hawkish Secretary of State, wanted to give the French two tactical nuclear weapons to, to stave off the North Vietnamese, and Eisenhower said no. So even even someone like Eisenhower, who, you know, our only defense is a nuclear defense, what was still, when, when, when it came down to actual events in the real world, was very, very hesitant to, to use them. That madman theory, it becomes known, or strategy with uh, Richard Nixon, is something that they all yeah. seem to play on a little even though, as you've discovered in writing the bomb and researching it and getting this information, these secrets, Ike says the goal isn't to win. We can't win. If you remember the Whopper from War Games, right? It, even the computer learns the only right. winning move is not to play. He says the goal is not to lose any worse yeah. than we have to if it does go right. nuclear. And he, you, you also say that adds to all of these moments, like, for instance, NASA deciding they're going to launch a missile down in Florida during the Cuban Missile Crisis could easily have been mm -hmm. mistaken for a nuclear missile. Yeah. And there's two men that I want to make sure that we mention on opposite sides of the Iron Curtain. One is Lieutenant Colonel mm -hmm. Stanislav Petrov, and the American is Lieutenant General Leonard yeah. H. Perutz. What do you hope readers will take from their actions well, and their restraint? These people who are, you know, again, not household names to say the least, and not not all that highly ranked, kind of mid-level officers. It could be said of them that they, on two separate occasions, saved the world. The Russian. There was one time, and in, in, in this, these both of these things happened in 1983, which I go into the book as might have been the most dangerous year of the Cold War for a variety of reasons. But over time on both sides, there have been false radar readings. You know, the radar indicates that there's a massive ICBM attack coming. Turns out to be a flock of geese or a computer error or something. But he saw, he, he was on duty that night, he was on the Air Defense Command, and he saw what appeared to be a giant ICBM attack coming. You know, he said this couldn't be right. There was no tensions going on at that moment. He, he, nobody really believes that a nuclear war is just going to happen out of the blue. There, there was nothing leading up to this. And so he did not send the orders up the chain of command, which he was required to do. And so nothing happened. And by the way, he, he learned for sure that this was not an attack only because the radar showed that the missiles had landed and exploded, and in reality, they had not. <laughs> the case of Perutz, he was involved, he was a NATO intelligence officer, and the United States was playing a war game in 1983, and it was a NATO war game. And it was an interesting war game because it was mainly focused on simulating a transition from conventional combat to nuclear changes. And this was much more realistic and much larger than any previous NATO war game. And this was during a period of some tension. And so there was a lot of intelligence out there that the Russians were looking at what we were doing and interpreting it as an actual preparation for an attack. And they started doing things. And if this lieutenant general had followed his orders, his, his standard operating procedures, 
he would have done certain things to escalate matters upon seeing the Russians escalating. But he had been skeptical about the wisdom of this war game to begin with. And so he did not respond. He held back. Have he done what he should have been doing, which was putting more missiles on alert and so forth? The Russians might have done the same and, and it could have gotten out of hand. I mean, to draw a contrast, look at a, a few instances that, that have happened recently. There was, well, there, this has happened several times, but just in recent weeks, there was tension in Iran and Iraq over, you know, the U.S. assassination of General Soleimani and then the attack on some U.S. bases. In the midst of all this tension, a Ukrainian passenger plane took off from Iran. Some nervous people in Air Defense Command mistook it for a plane coming to one of their targets, and they shot it down. The point is that when there is tension, when things are getting out of hand, people can make mistakes. If these two incidents that I talked about with the Russian lieutenant colonel and the American lieutenant general, if they had seen these things happening during actual moments of tension, they might have behaved differently. If it looked like the United States really was about to attack or if the Russians and Americans really were about to get into a war or, or you know, some event like the Cuban Missile Crisis, say, and there was a radar, a false radar signal of, of a bunch of missiles coming, he might have said, okay, I, I need to send this up to my superiors, and they might have responded accordingly. So a lot of the reason that we haven't had a nuclear war so far, uh, the reason why no nuclear weapons have been fired in anger, as they say, since Nagasaki, part of it is, you know, deterrence. This stuff really does deter even many anti-nuclear people can admit that, you know, the existence of nuclear weapons has probably prevented several wars from happening because you don't want to get it started because you don't know where it'll go. It might escalate to nuclear, so you just don't want it to begin. That's true. But a lot of the reason why it hasn't happened is just plain dumb luck and also some courageous presidents or premiers. I mean, for example, my textbook case on this is the Cuban Missile Crisis, which, you know, we're talking about authors in history. The amazing thing about the nuclear Cuban Missile Crisis is that we now have, and we've had for a couple of decades now, tape recordings that Kennedy secretly was making during the meetings of him and his advisors over those 13 days. Now, you would think, I mean, you know, how many crucial events have there been in history that have been tape recorded? Not very many. You'd think that people, historians would be plowing through these endlessly, but they haven't. And so the Cuban Missile Crisis is still completely misunderstood by most people. It is now well known because it was admitted by some of the participants uh, 20 years after the fact that Kennedy and Khrushchev settled the, the Cuban Missile Crisis with a secret deal that we that the Russians would get rid of their missiles in Cuba and Kennedy would get rid of U.S. missiles that were in Turkey, a very similar type. And uh, but what is not known and what was not admitted by the advisors is that when Khrushchev proposed doing this on the final day of the crisis, which was on a Saturday, 
every one of Kennedy's advisors was against the deal. Not just the generals, but also his civilian advisors. Bobby Kennedy, Robert McNamara, George Bundy, all these supposedly reasonable people, they argued strenuously against taking this deal. This will wreck NATO. This will piss off the Turks. Uh, this will be a sign of weakness. And Kennedy made the deal. Uh, but he, he did it in a certain way because he knew this would not, listen, this was the Cold War. This would not be popular. He demanded, he told, he sent Bobby to tell the Russian ambassador, okay, we'll take this deal, but here's the thing. You cannot make this public. If you make it public, it's off. You take out your missiles, we'll take out these missiles in Turkey six months down the road. And that's what happened. Then he brought in seven of his close advisors and told them what he was doing. That he was taking this deal, but you have to keep this secret. Two of his, one of his advisors who knew this, Ted Sorensen, his speechwriter, wrote a book about Kennedy where he completely lied about what happened during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and he thought he was doing so at Kennedy's instruction. So everybody was against it but Jack Kennedy. Now, let's say that Kennedy had succumbed to his advisors and said, okay, I won't take the deal. What would have happened? On the following Monday, two days later, the Joint Chiefs of Staff War Plan would have, was scheduled to go into effect. This involved 500 air sorties a day to knock out the missiles, not with nuclear weapons, with conventional weapons, but still. And then five days after this, a land invasion of Cuba. Now, what we learned many years after the fact that nobody knew at the time was that the Russians had loaded a lot of these missiles with nuclear warheads. We also learned much later that the Russians, that, that 40,000 40, Russian soldiers were hiding on the island of Cuba to stave off a possible American invasion. So in other words, if it hadn't been for John Kennedy, if anybody else in that room had been president, uh, we, we, we would have been embroiled in, in World War III with, with, with the Soviet Union. Now, this has another impact, and, and it's, it's also very tragic. One of the people that Kennedy did not tell that he'd made this deal was his vice president, Lyndon Johnson. And so when Johnson became president, he believed the myth that we went eyeball to eyeball with the Russians and the Russians backed down, and that's how you deal with enemies in the international arena and in war. And so when it came to fighting the Vietnam War, Johnson was not interested in negotiation. He was interested in, in toughness. And it's interesting, McGeorge Bundy, who was Kennedy and Johnson's national security advisor, he wrote a very interesting memoir about 25 years later, published posthumously. And he admitted that hushing up the missile trade produced pernicious consequences. And I'm going to quote this directly. He said, we misled our colleagues our countrymen, our successors, and our allies into believing that it had been enough to stand firm on that Sunday and on that Saturday. And, and what he's saying is that basically this led in some ways to the escalation of the Vietnam War. It led presidents, including Johnson and Nixon, to look at the Cuban Missile Crisis as a lesson, as, as an example 
of how you deal with enemies in crises, but they learned the wrong lessons because the lessons uh, were, were based on a lie. And it was a, deli- it was a lie that Kennedy deliberately told because he wanted to look tough. He did not want it known that he had made a deal with, with the Soviet Union. So again, the, these are turning points in history that, that are quite sharp. It's a very sharp angled pivot and if it had gone just a little bit the other way, if it had been a little less sharp, catastrophic consequences could have accrued. Those are the scary things. I spoke a couple times about those four fail-safes. Sometimes it's a human being who is that fifth fail-safe who prevents yeah. nuclear war. And I was thinking, I mentioned the World War II generation Nobody wanted to be Lieutenant Kermit A. Tyler, and he was the first lieutenant who saw the, well, he didn't see, but a radar operator told him, hey, I see these planes, I think, on the radar coming Mm. at Pearl Harbor, and he told the radar operator, don't worry about it. And there, those people would have been aware of that at the time and said, hey, this is a chance here. I, I don't want to be the guy who screws up and, and misses a first attack in World War III like there was in World War II that yeah. launches the U.S. into that. Going back there briefly to World War II, you'd think Harry S. Truman would have a cavalier attitude about their use, having dropped two nuclear bombs. But we read in the bomb that it's not the case. In fact, you write that for several years, the... Air Force had to go through the Atomic Energy Commission even to load the weapons on their planes. There's a rivalry between the Navy and the Air Force. They feel the Air Force has a monopoly. So what better way to make the Navy happy than start giving them nuclear weapons? Then they kind of quiet down around Mm -hmm. it. And once that seal is broken, though, the presidents do try to hold back. Even if, like John F. Kennedy, they run on a missile gap that, that doesn't exist, that Dwight Eisenhower explains, hey, here's the real numbers. They do what we like to say, grow in office, or we like to think that they do, or maybe they just always were a little bit more controlled. It is sobering to know that so often it can come down to one person saying, no, we're not going to, we're not going to continue. Because usually when you let the nuclear genie out or a genie out, it's hard. You can't get them back in the bottle, but just to keep them in the room, you know, look how much trouble uh, I mentioned NASA, look how much trouble Larry Hagman had. And I dream of genie keeping her under control, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of like that. I, I'm thinking of genies letting her out. How do you keep that under control? And yet they managed well, to do right. it. And here's where we can come into some contrasts or at least some cautionary thinking about today. I go through several nuclear crises and show that that presidents who, even if they had been in the abstract, eager to take the Joint Chiefs advice or cavalier about nuclear weapons, once they get into the crisis and they study the situation and they go through the discussions and they look at the scenarios and what might happen, they tend to back away. People were getting nervous about the bomb again. And the reason they were getting nervous is it started with with, uh, President Trump's comments about fire and fury six months after he came into office, where he said of the the North Koreans, uh, not of the North Koreans attack us, but of the North Koreans continue to talk in threatening language and test nuclear missiles or weapons that we're going to unleash fire and fury like the world has never seen. And then, you know, he put out some documents, one document called the Nuclear Posture Review, which was from the Pentagon, which talked about integrating nuclear weapons and non-nuclear weapons and building new kinds of nuclear weapons. Well, what people didn't quite understand is that that latter part, 
you know, integrating nuclear and non-nuclear weapons and so forth. That had been around for decades. That was what is the underlying reality. But the fear is that Trump might be more eager to use them than somebody else. And that if in the, in the Cold War, a lot of people talked about something, called, a phenomenon called the clever briefer. Somebody who uh, is very clever and there's a crisis and he brief, gives a briefing to the president or the Soviet premier. There's, a, there's an option here that you can use that uh, you, you will get away with, with a nuclear attack. That was the fear. It wasn't, if, if people behave rationally, you know, this isn't going to happen. But maybe the clever briefer would, would convince Khrushchev or Brezhnev or whoever that uh, it's worth the gamble and he's going to launch the attack. Well, it just seems to me that Trump is more susceptible to the wiles of a clever briefer than, than anybody else. Now, one thing that learned, well, we thought we'd learned until a, a little while ago, was that Trump really doesn't seem terribly interested in getting involved in wars, which, which is good. But then he assassinates a major general in Iran. And, you know, for a variety of reasons, this didn't spin completely out of control, but it looked for a moment like it might. So, which gives the impression that maybe he doesn't understand that when you do something like that, it, it is an act of war. You don't kill a top general or political leader of a foreign country unless you're at war with that country. Therefore, by doing that to Iran, he essentially committed an act of war against Iran. So again, for a variety of reasons, this did not spin out of control. But again, it's one of these, it's another signal that maybe President Trump might get himself into situations that he would have a hard time getting out of, unlike all of our previous presidents who, who when they did find themselves in, in a similar situation, did study the situation deeply and do quite a lot to prevent it from spinning out of control. You said the term fire and fury. The original act of war that occurs mm -hmm. under Jimmy Carter, if we want to date it back that far, and that is something that President Trump connects it back to, is mm -hmm. the storming of the embassy. It's not the Ayatollah's baby, so to speak. He tells these people that do it, are you crazy? There's going to be fire from the sky. The U.S. is not going to stand for this. And Jimmy Carter, in an effort to de-escalate this, I guess you'd say, in our parlance, would write him a letter and tries to speak to him and tries to not. I mean, of course, the time, the Shah, all this complicates it. So this is the thing, to directly confront it in the nuclear age and to wait for nuclear proliferation to occur is terrifying in this current time because you say in the bomb, you're talking about the briefers. No one wanted to be the advisor who steps forward in the middle of a crisis with the Russians, and this could be the Iranians, any nuclear power, the North Koreans, and tells the president of the United States, I'm sorry, but there are no good options in a nuclear war. Right. There's nothing you can do. And so think about that. You know, think about that great George C. Scott character in yeah. Dr. Strangelove and that, you know, we could take him, like we'll, we'll get our noses messed up. Yeah. 10, 20 yeah, million right. That's it. Well, this is where they yeah. got into issues about limited nuclear options. And, and this is an interesting thing, because here's the thing. As the Cold War moved on, and as we started to put conventional forces in Europe, so that you really could have at least some kind of conventional defense, and then the Soviet Union also amassed a nuclear arsenal. Once the Soviets got a big nuclear arsenal, massive retaliation it loses some credibility. Let's say the Soviets invaded West Germany. 
would we really launch an all-out nuclear attack against the Soviet Union, knowing that they could respond by launching an all-out nuclear attack against us? This is when the Europeans, the West Europeans, started to get nervous about NATO. And General de Gaulle would say, you know, would an American president risk New York for Paris? You know, would he put New York on the line to defend Paris? Well, maybe not. And so the generals and even some civilian strategists and technology changed as well, started trying to come up with limited nuclear options, ways to, you know, if a war does get out of hand, maybe fire just a few nuclear weapons in such a way that it makes the other guy back down and, and you can end this war before catastrophe occurs. And, you know, the, the people who first started thinking about this, even as far back as early Kennedy administration, they didn't quite believe that it would work, but they thought that if there was a chance to make it work, and, and you know, they also thought that war with the Russians was almost inevitable, then let's give it a try. But then what do you have to do? The idea is to convince the Russians that you really are going to use, that you really might use nuclear weapons, and you have some options for doing so. Well, then you have to create some options for that. And then you have to build certain kinds of weapons and execute and, and devise plans that will allow you to do that. And so once you get to the third or fourth iteration of this, you get to the point where there is almost no distinction between nuclear deterrence and nuclear war fighting. You have to build the capability to fight a nuclear war in order to deter a nuclear war. And, you know, what I'm saying in this book, this whole thing gets kind of crazy. Once you look into it deeply, it looks crazy. I, I talk about there's this one strategist, a civilian who had been, who was a special assistant to, to the Secretary of Defense under every administration from Kennedy to, to Carter. And this is what he worked on all the time. And when he retired finally and looked at it from a distance, he said, wow, that's a crazy world. And it is a crazy world. And it's our world. And this is, this, is, this is kind of the tragic state of our times, that what these guys are saying, there's a certain sense to it. And the only way that we can get out of this, really, is we, we're stuck with these. Nuclear weapons are not going to disappear. I don't know anybody <clears throat> who thinks that they will, short of some enormous transformation in world politics that, that maybe we can't see. You know, it, this goes back to another story during the Kennedy administration. Shortly after the Cuban Missile Crisis, Kennedy is sitting talking with Secretary McNamara and his chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And by the way, this is another tape. And, and it's, it's a tape recording of a conversation that I've never seen recorded in any other book. But Kennedy is basically saying, you know, why are we why are we building so many nuclear weapons? The Russians had just had about 30 nuclear weapons in Cuba. And he says, you know, I would have been deterred by those missiles that, uh, that, that, he, that, that he had in, in, in Cuba. I mean, he wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been a victory for them, but it would have prevented me from doing a lot. And so if we have 40 missiles that can destroy 40 cities, that should be enough. And then there's some conversation. And then he thinks, he says, well, then again, I guess if deterrence failed, what I would want to do is go after their missiles. 
not those cities. And so, yeah, I'm going to need more than 40 missiles to do that. And right there, Kennedy hits upon the dilemma of nuclear strategy, which is on the one hand, you want to threaten to wreak so much destruction on the other guy that he's not even going to entertain for a second launching a nuclear attack against you. But, but what if that fails? What if for some reason things get out of hand and a nuclear war starts? You want to have some option that maybe will stop it before you go all the way. So that that's the dilemma. And I don't see how we get out of that dilemma. It's a situation that we're in. Now, I think there are still things that, that can be done to reduce the chance of nuclear war. I mean, you know, I, I, there are certain kinds of weapons that you can avoid building. It would be a good idea if we got rid of all land-based intercontinental ballistic missiles that had multiple warheads. It would be a good idea to put as many under the ocean as possible, you know, things like that. This is the dilemma of our times, and it's to keep disaster from happening or to maximize the chance that disasters won't happen. It, it does no good to bury our heads under under a pillow or, or to take a very simplistic view of this. You have to think these things through, and that's what every president who has got himself out of a nuclear crisis has done. They've thought this thing through all the way to the end and realized that, no, it makes no sense to get started on this. And Kennedy, he realized, okay, I'm in stuck here. I am stuck. The very existence of nuclear weapons puts me on course for a nuclear arms race. So what I have to do, I have to go about, I have to start ending the Cold War. And he gave a speech in June of 1963 at the American University. And this is like, you know, six months after the Cuban Missile Crisis, seven, eight months, calling for an end to the Cold War. And proposing certain things, a test ban on missiles, reductions, and so forth. And the CIA monitored very closely this Russian reaction to this. The Russians actually, the Russian press, Pravda and Izvestia, reprinted Kennedy's speech in its entirety. They also removed the jammers from signals of, of Radio Free Europe and the Voice of America and allowed his speech to be heard. Khrushchev was very excited by this. Both sides started to take certain action to actually do this. And then, and again, here we come to another tragic pivot in history. Kennedy was assassinated. And about a year later, Khrushchev was ousted. And that's when the missile race really took off. It was after Kennedy and Khrushchev were gone. So, you know, there's some tendency and, and there's truth to this to look at history kind of structurally, you know, as, as, a, as a playing out of, of certain systems. And you read some history books and what happens seems almost inevitable, almost mechanistic. But no, actually, there, there are certain turning points or potential turning points in history when the presence or absence of a single person can actually make an enormous difference. There's also that moment with Eisenhower where he's planning yeah. to meet with Khrushchev, and then, of course, the U-2 That's goes right. down. They miss the chance. You're enjoying my conversation with Fred Kaplan, author of The Bomb, Presidents, Generals, and the Secret History of Nuclear War. You can find today's guest at fredkaplan.info or at fmkaplan on Twitter. Publishers Weekly writes of The Bomb, quote, Kaplan synthesizes a wealth of material into lucid, easy-to-follow anecdotes 
that reveal the complex nature of planning for nuclear war. Readers with a stomach for pondering Armageddon will find this well-written history to be full of insights. I want to touch on that, having the stomach for pondering Armageddon. I didn't feel that I had to keep my stomach particularly empty. I was able to eat a full meal and still read the bomb. And it is inspiring if you go into it with that bent, and partially because you, as the author, lead the readers through those things. You write, for instance, that Ronald Reagan detested nuclear weapons and, as passionately as Jimmy Carter, wanted to see them abolished. And this is after Carter, for instance, his contribution to your book or to our nuclear policy and this keeping this streak alive of not using these weapons in anger is wanting to make them all submarine-based mm-hmm. missiles mm-hmm. as a deterrent. The thing that I wanted to mention was Reagan. As a former actor, as somebody who's very deeply moved by the movie The Day After, for instance, I remember they made us in school watch that and come to school the next day and talk about it, depicting a nuclear war and the nuclear winter that you invoked earlier. He goes about talking of the weapons as a common threat to humanity, not unlike the common Nazi foe. And you said, how do we get out of this? Well, I guess the way is we come together. As Abraham Lincoln said, do I not destroy my enemy when I make him my friend? And this is what happens in the 80s, where the two leaders come together in this little hut in Geneva, I believe in front of a fireplace, as you describe it. So tell us that moment, because it does read out of something like a movie. And if you were watching it in a movie or reading it in a novel, you probably wouldn't have believed that this was this was what these two men bonded over. To be a more fascinating character. I'm 65 right now. So I mean, I was a a reporter when Reagan, I was in Moscow covering the Moscow summit where Reagan said that the Cold War was the evil empire was a different time, different place. So, you know, I I covered this guy contemporaneously and and looking through archives, I'm sort of stunned. It it turns out that Reagan was a nuclear abolitionist. His advisors kept this as secret as they could. He he might be the only person who believed that the Star Wars program really would, you know, the whole idea was to create this astrodome that would keep nuclear weapons from exploding. And so... In the first term, Reagan does this enormous nuclear buildup and conventional buildup, and then he's seeing that the Russians are getting all skittish and paranoid. <laughs> yeah, they're Why afraid not? of the space shuttle, And he realizes, right? <laughs> oh, I need, to, I need to dial this back. And he, wants, he all, wants to meet with a Russian leader. They keep dying on him, as he says. Then Gorbachev comes along. And Gorbachev, you know, it's not remembered accurately how long a lot of people in the U.S. government including the director of the CIA at the time, were very suspicious of Gorbachev's heirs of being a reformer. They thought it was a hoax. They thought it was a a trap. So Reagan, he goes to meet him in Geneva. And at at first, the the conversation is very tense. Gorbachev is complaining about Star Wars, and Reagan is complaining about Soviet support of third world revolutions. And then they decide to go for a walk. They're at the chateau, and they go into this cabin, where this fireplace is blazing, and it's just them and their translators, nobody else. And at one point, Reagan says, let me ask you, if we were, if the United States was invaded by aliens from outer space, would the Russians come to our defense? And Gorbachev says, absolutely. And Reagan says, I feel the same way. And they walked out, and they come back to the conference, and George Shultz writes later, not knowing that what had happened in this little meeting, 
that the, the air had changed completely, that these guys were joking, they were acting like they were old friends, and at that point, things changed. And then we come to another crazy pivot. They meet again a little while later in Reykjavik because they want to reduce arms. So they want to get together and break the logjam. And you might recall at Reykjavik, that's where they very nearly struck a deal to get rid of all nuclear weapons. And it's fascinating, you know, the, the, the transcripts of the, of the dialogue between Reagan and Gorbachev in English and in Russian, the English note-takers, the Americans, and the Russian note-takers, those have been declassified now. And what's fascinating is that this is 10 hours of conversation. And let's allow for the translations. Let's say six hours of conversation about nuclear issues. Now, Reagan had some crazy ideas about some of this, but he understood the implications of the ideas. These were serious conversations. It's almost inconceivable to imagine, say, Trump talking about nuclear weapons like this for 10 hours. But anyway, they came up with this idea, and then Reagan put a thing on it. Reagan was still committed to Star Wars, you know, the Strategic Defense Initiative. And Gorbachev said, here's the thing, though, I'll do this, but part of the deal has to be a 10-year ban on any tests of anti-ballistic missiles in space. And Reagan would not go for it, and the deal collapsed. So it was still this... Russian paranoia about Star Wars and Reagan's delusions about the possibility of Star Wars that that prevented, I mean, who knows what would have happened, but I mean, if, if and I don't think we ever would have gotten rid of all of the nuclear weapons, because other countries have nuclear weapons too, but it would have been a dramatic reduction to the point where it really does take on a much slighter role. In, in international politics than it did. I mean, this history is full, again, of, of all these genuine transformations and these might-have-been-almost transformations that really boggle the mind. You know, Karl Marx, one of the least Marxist things that Karl Marx ever wrote was, history walks on two feet. In other words, there is a human contingency here, <laughs> and it has to do with who is in the right place, when and where that can have at least as an abrupt an impact as, you know, larger structures of economic systems and so forth. Edward Teller was the one that Ronald Reagan looked to, the co-father of the hydrogen yeah. bomb, and then offers to share it, much like, I guess, like the open skies with Eisenhower, but says, well, we'll share it with you. And Gorbachev is saying, yeah, which, of course, well, I don't Gorbachev think so. Couldn't, couldn't <laughs> believe, yeah. 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 He says, you, and you wonder share your agricultural equipment with us. You're not going to share something like this. No, it was a very strange time that I think people who, uh, yeah, you know, we're talking about you know, 35 years ago. There are a lot of people who weren't born 35 years ago. And it's, you know, I was a reporter. I was in Berlin just before and just after the wall came down. And I remember just the, the, the enormous change that happened literally overnight. And then I remember thinking, you know, it's going to be very hard to explain to future generations just what the hell this wall was doing, that, that there was a wall dividing a city uh, from 1961 to 1989. The capital of a major yeah, power. Yeah, a major, major. And, you know, and, you know, you go to Berlin today, uh, except for, you know, the, uh, the, the kind of tourist attraction around Checkpoint Charlie, 
couple of spots in the city where, where they have a, a little stretch of wall. So you see just how horrific the thing was. Uh, you, you wouldn't know that, that anything like that was ever there. It, it, history can can take very, very, very sharp turns that, that cannot be predicted by simply structural analyses of history. I guess that's why we have words like visionary, right? For people who do see things that are impossible. People who see like, visions, maybe some of them are visionary, some of them just see uh, visions. You know, it's, it's a very big difference between the two, but sometimes a, a fine line. And when it comes and it, it works out for something like ending the Cold War, hey, uh, I'm all for yeah. positive things. That was a Robert F. Kennedy, right? Imagine yeah. things that have never been. You know, some people say, why? Others say, why not? That is an uplifting part. And there's even benefits. I mean, you talk about how negative things were. In the book, The Only Plane in the Sky, an oral history of 9-11, Garrett M. Graff wrote that Vice President Cheney was able to apply a lot of these lessons. And he said, Something that stuck with me from that book, he said, well, we war game for much worse. And this is something that hung over. And in fact, I believe that Ronald Reagan kept putting off those nuclear briefings, didn't didn't want to yeah, take them in the, in the beginning. He didn't want to even think about it. He heard his nuclear war briefing much later than any other president. And, and interestingly, by contrast, Jimmy Carter, who detested nuclear weapons and, you know, wanted to make drastic reductions, although it never happened for a variety of reasons, but he got into it very deeply. In fact, a couple of times a year, there are nuclear war games where, you know, sort of assistant secretary level people, a cabinet secretary sometimes plays the president, and maybe a dep- an assistant secretary of defense plays the secretary of defense. And they go through all the scenarios. Well, everybody was shocked. Carter comes into this game. He's playing himself. And he was yeah, stunned amazing. to learn that he was the first president to do this. He was also stunned to learn that, that in the actual exercises for these things, he was the first president to bring in his vice president, which struck him as nutty. I mean, if a president gets killed <laughs> uh, because the White House is blown up or something, the vice president takes yeah. over. And, and yet, until he brought in Walter Mondale to these exercises, any previous vice president, it would have been like the first day on the job. They, they wouldn't have had any briefings or anything on this ever. And in fact, Carter stepped up. He made exercises very specific. He had he he told his national security advisor, Zbigniew uh, Brzezinski, mm-hmm. to schedule surprise yeah. alerts, like you know, like oh, on a Friday night yeah. at eight o'clock. Okay, an attack is coming. Everybody who's supposed to get into the helicopter and to go into the alternate command post, come to the White House and get in the helicopter. And of course, no. <laughs> No, there was no way to even contact these people. And, and he created the system that and over a period where, yeah, it got to be like clockwork. Some of the people who have, who've got most into this thing are some of the least likely people from, you know, the, the popular stereotype about them. I mean, can you imagine you walk in as vice president and this is after, by the way, I mean, a guy who was just in the Soviet Union and has been out shooting people defected to the Soviet Union and Lee Harvey Oswald has shot a president already and the vice president's had to take over. I mean, that that could have been an opening strategy. In fact, now I believe if there is an attack on the president, they assume it's an attack on the entire chain of command, the John Wilkes Booth plan to decapitate the government. But at the time, they don't. And you could conceivably have some low-level cabinet secretary who had played designated survivor 
<laughs> no more than than the president or vice president while this is going on. Amazing, Not amazing stuff. Harry, Harry Truman had been vice president for a matter of months when, when Roosevelt yeah, died. Yeah, 11 months. He was kind yeah. of an unlikely choice. He was even thinking of getting out of politics. He wasn't a, a highly educated man. And one of the first things they told him about was the atom bomb. He had never even heard of the atom bomb while he was vice president. And he has to make a decision uh, in a matter of, you know, a couple of months, whether to use it or not. That's all changed. I mean, now now vice presidents are more routinely brought into these things. But it's kind of stunning to think, or, you know, for example, Lyndon Johnson, not knowing about the secret deal that Kennedy made to solve the Cuban Missile Crisis. Put that on Kennedy, who didn't think for a second that he was, you know, it'd been a long time since the president had been assassinated, although Kennedy was not in good health either. I mean, it was it was irresponsible of him to to keep Johnson out in the cold on something like that. We have time for one final question. The bomb does continue through the present day. We could keep talking about this. It's such fascinating stuff. I hope people are intrigued and want to pick up the bomb. There's nuclear saber rattling, as we like to call it, going on continuously. People are going to hear this about the time your book comes out. So who knows what new thing could be on the horizon. But since this is a history show and I love to look to the past to inform the future, one reason I enjoyed your book so much, although I don't think I'll ever be sitting in the Oval Office, but you never know, Harry Truman, as you just mentioned, he was just a haberdasher, right? And he ended up being in control of nuclear policy. I'd like to wrap up by asking you for a general bit of advice. What can we do as citizens, people who never hold office, people maybe who only by going and casting our vote, going to a city hall meeting, that's as far as we're going to get. What can we do to continue humanity's streak of avoiding? Well, that's again? a tough one, because as, as you've said, uh, you know, there are a lot of things that go on in the in the federal government that it's very hard for ordinary citizens to have any impact on. War planning and, and particularly nuclear war planning, I mean, that that's as high level and secretive as it gets. It's, it's completely removed from us. And it's kind of invisible, too. You know, we have land-based missiles in, in, in silos out in the middle of nowhere, uh, submarines under the ocean, bombers and, and air bases that, again, are very remote from, from where a lot of people live for obvious reasons. But I think, um, well, one thing, you know, I'll, I'll end this with, with something that, that almost happened. It's very interesting. And this is the kind of thing where political pressure might be exerted. You know, one thing that has been commonly known by people who know a lot about this, but is strikes people by surprise who don't. And that is that, you know, there is no chain of command when it comes to the use of nuclear weapons. The president of the United States has the power to fire off these things. Nobody, there's, there's nobody who can give him permission. There's nobody who at least legally can block him from doing it. If, if the, there is a, a protocol, uh, there's a phone call that's made and, you know, the chairman of the strategic command and the secretary of defense and all these people are conferring with him. But the decision is his and his alone. Now, there's a reason for that. And that is that back in the day when, you know, we had, well, we still have our missiles pointed at each other. And they're, you know, that takes 30 minutes from missiles in Russia to hit 
the United States. Some of those minutes are taken up by the early warning radar, detecting them, and then communicating this to the president and making sure it's really happening. There's really only a few minutes left for a president. And so it's hard. You can't assemble the cabinet, much less the Congress, to figure out what to do. And this is one reason why it's a good idea to put all the, the so many more of the missiles have gone to sea, because maybe you don't have to respond right away. You've got all these things in, underwater. But that's one thing. There's another kind of use of nuclear weapons. If we go first with a nuclear attack, and one thing that we haven't talked about much, but one thing that some people might be surprised to learn from my book is that the war plans have always had assumptions about how we would use them first. It's not entirely a retaliatory plan. There's plenty of first strike options. And so you can make the case that, you know, let's say the president wants to launch nuclear weapons on North Korea because they seem to be about to launch something or they're they're creating the ability to do so. And, you know, Trump was talking about this during the fire and fury time for something like that. I see no reason why there shouldn't be a requirement. You know, maybe not all of Congress, but maybe, you know, the cabinet, the group of eight in Congress who are always informed about highly classified intelligence operations. And in 2018, shortly after all the fuss about fire and fury, uh, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee assembled a hearing on presidential launch authority. And this was the first hearing on the subject that Congress had assembled since the mid-70s. So, you know, it had been almost 40 years, and uh, more than 40 years. And some people in the, in the hearing, some of the senators said, you know, let's, let's get to the, the essence here. We, it, it's, we, a lot of us don't think that this president is, is, has, uh, is fit for command. And we need to come up with some other idea. And interesting, no Republican on the committee contested this premise. They just stayed quiet. And uh, <clears throat> there was some, some very interesting, I have a whole section of a chapter on this. It was a very interesting hearing. And there, was some, there were some superb questions asked, some illuminating answers. And at the end of the hearing, nothing happened. Nothing That's what happened. their experts have. I mean, Congress <laughs> didn't change anything. They have, the, they have the power to. And one of the witnesses, this uh, retired general named Robert Keller, who, who had been a commander of strategic command, and he was really annoyed by this hearing because he's, he's thinking to himself, okay, these guys are basically saying that the commander-in-chief is not fit for this job. Okay, Congress has the power to change the procedures. And, you know, in his mind, hey, if they want to change the procedures, that's fine. I'll do whatever the Congress wants me to do. But they didn't change the procedures. And he thought it was irresponsible to raise questions about the reliability, even the sanity of the chain of command without doing anything about it. And so the, the point is, there are people in Congress who do have the authority and the power to make certain kinds of changes. And I'll tell you one thing, here, here's why they don't. It's a little risky. They don't want some crisis to happen and we're, we end up being screwed and they say, oh, 
this would have been better if you hadn't tied the president's hands behind his back. There's always a grave reluctance to interfere with the president's, you know, Article Two powers, even if it involves blowing up the world. And another reason why is because they don't think, and they're probably right in that they don't think that their constituents really care about this this much. So on the one hand, they feel a little fearful to get involved in it themselves, and they fear nothing from their constituents who, who don't seem to be interested in it. So if Congress people know that their constituents are interested and concerned and worried and have ideas about some ideas that can change, you know, there are a lot of ideas that seem kooky at first, but then after a while, enough people start talking about it that, that it then becomes a real thing. The day-to-day operations, that's hard to get at, but the overall policy to the extent that Congress can have a say in it, that this is something that citizens can have some impact. Well, Fred Kaplan, author of The Bomb, our doomsday clock may have struck midnight, but there's really so much more in your book for readers to enjoy. I hope we've given them food for thought. There's surprising moments in there. There's plenty of levity because the human condition and the fact that we have these bombs and even have to think about them is certainly something that you you would go crazy if you didn't have a little mm-hmm. bit of a laugh now and then. Fortunately, since we haven't used them again, we can afford to laugh. Good, good job, humanity. I really do thank you for taking the time to discuss your book today. And I hope readers will pick it up and get that in-depth journey through the nuclear well, age well, thank with you. you. Thanks. I've enjoyed it. In our obsession with antagonisms of the moment, we often forget how much unites all the members of humanity. Perhaps we need some outside universal threat to make us recognize this common bound. I occasionally think how quickly our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? What could be more alien to the universal aspirations of our peoples than war and the threat of war? That's a clip from President Reagan's address to the UN General Assembly on September the 21st, 1987. Stories of how we got into this mess and how we might, if not get out completely, at least manage it wisely, are in the bomb presidents, generals, and the secret history of nuclear war. As always, you can order your copy by clicking through the historyauthor.com page for this episode. Every time you buy a book through us, you help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My sincere thanks to Fred Kaplan for joining us and for giving an inside view of the leaders tasked with stewardship of Oppenheimer's deadly toy. Visit our guest at fredkaplan.info or find him at fmkaplan on Twitter. And you can visit slate.com for his column, War Stories. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book, the bomb, and the interview on Twitter at History Dean, Instagram at The History Author Show, or facebook.com slash historyauthor. That's it for this radioactive installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview 
right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east, sign west, sign things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. You're talking about mass murder, General, not war. Mr. President, I'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair mussed. But I do say no more than 10 to 20 million killed, tops, uh, depending on the breaks.